Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Tona Brown makes things. She makes classical music as a violinist and a mezzo-soprano vocalist, and she's an incredible singer, as we can hear here. Tona's made history as the first trans woman of color to play before a sitting U.S. president, President Barack Obama, and to headline a concert at the renowned Carnegie Hall. She makes her living by teaching others, including rappers, to use their voice or violin to play music for the heart or for survival. And now she's made her mark with a new memoir titled Tonacity, the Tona Brown Story. To talk with us about what's in that memoir, we have Tona Brown herself. Tona, welcome. Thank you. How are, how's everyone today? Oh, great. And also, the the uh, everyone here includes a local guest who's the memoir's narrator, also Tona's longtime friend and former St. Louis American Managing Editor, Chris King. Chris, welcome to you as well. Hi. So glad to have you both on the show today. Now, let's talk about this memoir. Tona, the approach in it, I had said earlier, it was great to hear your voice because I've been reading it. There's an author, a narrator, an editor. Whose idea was it to approach this in such manner? Well, um, it's interesting because my buddy, Christopher King, um, had been telling me for years that he felt that I needed to have a book of some sort to tell my story. And at the time, I was in my 20s or early 30s, and I didn't feel that I had lived enough and had enough experiences to really share um, things about my life or that even anyone would even care. And he kept telling me that that was in my head and that people really would like to know how I was able to build a career in classical music and in the arts and the things that I was doing. So it actually was Christopher King's idea. Mm-hmm. I, I would have never thought to write a book, especially about myself. Yeah. So, I mean, the the way that this book was written is very interesting in that, Chris, you are the, the narrator of the book. Why is it that this felt like the right approach for Tona to be the author and for you to narrate? Honestly, it was a save of my failure to write a through line memoir. I wanted it to be her story and her voice and I just edited it. But I was really getting burnt out as a journalist and turning these interviews into a through line narrative was a lot like editing a newspaper, which I was desperately sick of doing. <laughs> so Megan Sheehy, an old friend of Tona's, stepped in and it was her idea when she went through the interviews, she liked the way it sounded as a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So it was her idea just to actually print the interviews with some chapter headings and some data and some insights into the transgender experience. Right. Now, this is 50 plus hours of conversation between you, Chris, and Tona. Where was it that these conversations happened and over how long a a number of years? I remember visiting Washington, D.C. with my family often for various reasons, and Tona would come 
to the hotel and we would sort of sit in the hallway and we would do whatever it took. And then when we're getting close and Tona was starting to really want to finish the book, Scott Intagliata, who's a local businessman and a supporter of a lot of causes, he supported my trip. Uh, Tona and I seem to always be broke. You know, <laughs> He supported my trip uh, to Northern Virginia and I actually stayed with her for a long weekend and we worked every day and that was really, really fun. That's mm-hmm. how we finished it. Okay. Tona, tell me about the title of this book, Tonacity, which is T-O-N-A-C-I-T-Y. How does it reflect um, what your experience has been and who you are? That's a wonderful question. Um, Actually, that was always my nickname. So as a transgender person, um, you have to come up with a name that really, really resounds with you. And uh, people used to call me tenacity. And when I was in the club scene, I used to, you know, party like any other young person. And so that was my nickname. And then as I started getting a little older, instead of saying tenacity, people would just say Tona. And it just kind of stuck. And actually, that became my legal name. So tenacity not only um, represents the tenacity you need to have with the E in order to succeed, but also it was at my actual name for quite some time until I had it legally changed. Mm-hmm. So the, the tone part of it is certainly no accident, given um, what you do for a living and the music that we heard in our introduction, which was Hence Iris, Hence Away from Semele by Handel, I think very much uh, demonstrated that for us. But can you talk with us about you know, how you became Tona, particularly given um, where you grew up and how your your family sort of responded to um to who you were emerging to be when you were young. Absolutely. Well, it a lot of it had to do with my voice. Um, as you guys can hear, um, that was always my natural voice. It, I always um, sing um, second soprano or alto. Um, growing up, I was a first soprano as a young boy. Um, and I had to accept myself and... I, I went through a long period of trying to figure out why the out, the exterior of me didn't fit who I felt I was on the inside and who everyone else around me kept just referring to me in certain ways. And in college, I started taking voice lessons. And there was a woman by the name of Dr. Og, who is a vocal specialist, who actually told me I was going to ruin my voice if I kept trying to sing like tenor and, you know, force my chords to um, strain. Mm -hmm. Because I used to crack horribly. And it it would be so funny. My speaking voice would crack. um, My singing voice would crack. Uh And the teachers didn't know what was going on. And we all would just kind of laugh at all. They would laugh it off and say, oh, well, you know, maybe you're having this extended puberty, like what's happening. And so it was through my voice that I learned to accept my reality as a transgender person that I, I didn't fit the mold of what society and the world and everyone says, even biologically, because I had this soprano instrument. And then on top of it, my voice is actually a larger instrument. So then there's the challenges of being a bigger voice and singing next to a lot of people who they would think that my voice was going to become. 
and my voice was too big for those roles. And so then there was that. So it's just like <laughs> my entire <laughs> career has been experimenting and going against the grain and realizing, okay, you're just going to have to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Well, and I did want to underscore what I was reading in the memoir about the kind of support that you got from your mother and your aunt, um, particularly mm-hmm. given that you were in the South and the uh, the sort of religious background that you were growing up um, with. Absolutely. Um, that I would not be here if it was not for those women in my life. Um, my The men in my life um, were supportive as well. But you have to remember, during that time, it's totally different than now. I mean, even just the last 10 years or 15 years, where there was language for what was going on, where there were people that you could look at as role models or possibility models and all those type of things. We didn't have that back then. And so my parents and my family was very concerned as to how would I be able to have a career and be myself. But they were they didn't have the right language. They didn't know what it was. But ever since I was a child, my mother knew that I was different from the age of three. Mm -hmm. And then my aunts who lived up north had actually come across transgender people, kind of understood some of the language and just decided that they, their main objective was to make sure that I had a wonderful self-esteem about myself. They felt that if I could learn to have a good self-esteem Um, and not be depressed and to understand that there was something unique and beautiful about myself. Um, And if I could find activities that worked, then all would be well. Mm -hmm. And it worked. I got into, I was a dancer at first. I used to take ballet, tap and jazz. uh, And I thought I was going to be a professional dancer for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I got into music and music was everything to me but it was first with violin because again as a transgender person it takes a lot of strength and courage to get up and sing in front of people mm-hmm. um so what i did was i started on violin and i started taking lessons and i met people who accepted me for who i was and the music And the arts community is very open and accepting. And I definitely would recommend it to anyone who's in the LGBTQ community. Um, It's one of the few spaces where you can be respected right off the bat. As long as you have talent, that precedes everything. Mm -hmm. Now, this aspect of courage as well as talent. So by the time you... Uh, went through sort of your transition period in college, you meet Chris King here in St. Louis. Where were you in your life and career at that time? And what was it that you had come to St. Louis for? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Well, I met Chris Christopher King while on the Tranny Road Show. It was a group of transgender people Um, who would travel to different colleges and universities from Florida all the way through Canada. And so I just got out of college and this was around 2005, I believe. And he happened to be in the audience writing for the St. Louis American. 
which was a historical, which is, I'm sorry, a, a, a historical, magnificent black newspaper. And he asked me if I would grant him an interview. And it was immediate that I think he was the first person who said, you know, the world needs to know about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why he picked me out of all the other performers to actually do this particular interview, maybe because it was a black paper and I was singing Negro spirituals. You'd have to ask him. Yeah, well, And that is what I am wondering about. Chris, what was it? Especially because Tona was among a number of people who were part of this uh, Tranny Roadshow. What made you want to write about Tona then? Well, she had this energy right off the bat. And I'm a musician at heart. I've made a living with words, but music was my first love. I tried to be a rock musician and couldn't make that happen. And also, she's just this combination of people. There's this element to her there. She was kind of a club banger. Um, her her preferences and partners are kind of a little rough, you know, at that time for sure. <laughs> and, and she was very, very funny and self-deprecating and witty. And then she was into heritage African-American composers. I'm like, she's African-American, transgendered, woman, musician, classical musician, into African-American composers, and has this other sort of club girl side to her. I just thought, what a character. Yeah. And I, I just sort of like fell in love with her all over. I just thought, what a, what a person. Mm -hmm. And she was almost newborn as a transgendered person. Mm -hmm. She had to come out when I got her publicity in her hometown, because I don't know if this is fair to say, the tone might have been sort of passing as a cisgender woman. Mm -hmm. She had to go and tell people, by the way, there's going to be a story about me in the paper, and you might be surprised it's something right. you're going to learn. Absolutely. And, and Tona, you had in, in the in the memoir, you kind of joke with Chris that there were people who told you that you had ruined your career at that point by granting this interview. Why were they Absolutely. saying that? <laughs> Why were they saying that to oh, you? Oh my goodness. I mean, it was um it it was a big deal back then, and I I want people to understand that because now Things are just so different, but it was a big deal. And I did have some struggles. Um, I used to work with impoverished youth as well as um, women who were struggling in the in various churches. I would just go and give them voice lessons. And mm -hmm. um, they ended up firing me from that position from a big church um, in Larchmont um, area of Norfolk. And it was a huge scandal. And I chose to leave before it was some super outing and firing mm -hmm. um, just because I didn't want any drama, but it was a big deal. And what they were saying was, well, Tona, you've got you've gotten so far without anyone knowing. And this was the general attitude of that time. Mm -hmm. Why tell people and even with some of members of my family who were you know, so proud of me. But at the same time, it was it's about survival, right? Like, yeah. this is something new, people don't really know much about it. And so I kept getting people saying, just don't say anything, do your auditions, you know, do your competitions, do whatever it is that you like to do. And then, you know, you're so open about yourself, you can tell them afterwards, that was like the advice of that time. Mm -hmm. And I refused. So when Christopher King, as well as GLAD and some other organizations asked me to speak out more on a regional and then 
eventually a national basis. I had no problems in doing that. And it's interesting with that church gig, the minister came to my house and he was a very um, transphobic individual Mm -hmm. and he couldn't understand why I said anything. He said that he didn't have anything against me personally. It was just against his religious beliefs, but it was the Episcopal church and the Episcopal church had said that they were open to all of us. And I do a lot of work with open and affirming churches to this day. And I knew that this was just him. And eventually they end up getting rid of him. And it was interesting because the other organist, he's an out gay man. Mm -hmm. So you picking me to get rid of, and I'm doing something after church, you know what I'm saying? Not even during church services. So it's just a part of bigotry that I had to learn to, um, still develop a career knowing that there are these attitudes about who we are. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a very quick break here, but when we come back, we will continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. Let's return to our conversation with classical violinist and vocalist Tona Brown and journalist Chris King. Let's listen to a bit of Mother and Child from your 2012 album, Tona, This Is Who I Am. That's Tona Brown on her 2012 album, This Is Who I Am. Now, Mother and Child is a song written by William Grant Still, the first African-American to conduct a major symphony orchestra in the U.S. and to have an opera produced by a major company in America. Tona, why was it that you included this song on your album? Oh, my goodness. Um... William Grant Steele is such an inspiration to so many of us who are classical musicians of color. One can only imagine what this man went through, but was able to succeed regardless of. And I think that is very parallel to my experience. And then it's just so beautiful. I mean, the melody just puts audiences into tears. And then the imagery of thinking of what it, how do you make a violin sound like the beauty between a mother and their child? I mean, and thinking of the holding of the child, thinking of playing, you know, out at the park, all of these different things. And so those are the type of things that go through my mind as I'm presenting the song. 
um, as I'm playing the work. And it's also very challenging um, in certain areas as well. But the, the melody is just so gorgeous. So I just had to include it. And I wouldn't have known anything about this repertoire if it wasn't for the woman who is accompanying me mm-hmm. as um, her name was Geraldine her name is I'm sorry Geraldine Boone she's been a mentor of mine she's been a, a vice president of the National Association of Negro Musicians she is still in her 80s working with the Chesapeake Civic Choir and I mean just just this bubble of energy and she was another lady who saw my what I wanted to do my dreams and aspirations and she didn't judge my exterior Mm -hmm. she didn't care about any of those things she just heard this music and so oftentimes she would teach me negro spirituals and so a lot of the spirituals that I sing at Carnegie Hall and that I do come from learning them directly from her Mm -hmm. no Chris you had talked about what it was that stood out to you seeing Tona perform on stage here in 20, 2005, 2006 or so. Um, and you also heard Tona talk about the kinds of reactions she got. I mean, clearly, as we've just heard, she's a supremely talented musician, but there were musicians telling her that she should not be open about who she is. When you had written that article about her, in 2006, did you have any concerns about how that might impact her livelihood? She talked about it, and she had to make the decision to go forward with it. There was some risk on both sides. This is 2006. It was a lifetime ago when it comes to these issues. Even when I brought Tona back to St. Louis to look into some performance opportunities, some of the places we took her around town, they looked at her like she was a unicorn or something. Mm -hmm. And that was the other element of her that fascinated me, because on the one hand, she was a classical musician. On the other hand, you know, she was sort of like a sex symbol as a transgender woman. And our, our book goes into a lot of that aspect of it. Tona mentioned transphobic men, but she also told me, there's a, there isn't any profession, there isn't any walk of life, there isn't a prominent man who's made a move on me, mm-hmm. on Tona. And yet, on the light of day, they might cross the street or be transphobic, but they're actually attracted to her. And she had this dual consciousness in so many facets of life. Mm-hmm. And, I, and she's just her candor and her humor that comes through in the book. And just being her friend all these years, I just love talking to her. Right. So it was fun talking to her. And it did not damage your career, Tona, and the achievements that we had talked about earlier about uh, playing before President Barack Obama in 2011. Um, there was mm-hmm. that part of it. There was also playing Carnegie Hall. But I, I want to hear a little bit about how you ended up playing before President Obama. How did that happen? Well, what well, what I will say is that it didn't damage my career in the sense of not being successful. What the damage is is systemic, which is any sort of um, thing that you deal with um, in society or with racism. So therefore, I was never able to get corporate sponsorship for my events. Uh, I mean, I will just say just within the past couple of years, even um, corporations, banks or whatever feel strongly enough that they would sponsor 
the things that I do. And that is very important because the arts already struggle, right? Sure. And so you have so many people who are so excited. They come on my team and they think that we should do these things and it would make perfect sense for all of these different organizations to put in money. And they're often surprised that these organizations will shy away once they find out that I'm the one who's headlining because they're scared of their funders and all of that. Mm -hmm. As far as um Carnegie Hall and also performing for um the great president Barack Obama what that was just simply pure tenacity and determination mm -hmm. I found out that he was going to be presenting for the LGBT leadership conference and I contacted them and said this man there it had never been done and I'm all about moving things ahead and so i wanted to volunteer for things of this nature while still trying to figure out and grow my career and encourage my students um, with my company aida studios and it just seemed like the perfect opportunity and of course you know it was like a month of just anxiety because I wanted it so bad and they had already had all these phenomenal performers Audra McDonald soprano who is you know Tony award-winning um, soprano uh, for musical theater I absolutely adore her and Neil Patrick Harris was there and so they really didn't need me in that sense and it just so happened after three weeks or so of just you know being totally nervous and getting a group together to go and do it they gave the affirmative and said hey we don't need you in the middle of the show but is it possible we need someone that can sing the national anthem to bring you know this thing in and of course I said yes and then on the way there they tell me that the musicians that I was going to bring could not be on the stage and so that was a whole nother drama <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a whole nother drama because one of the musicians had been institutionalized. And so they didn't know if there was going to be anything that might harm the president. Sure. And so we had to deal with that. And of course, that was, oh my goodness, that was just tragic. And But he was a trooper. He still came and supported the event. But that's, again, behind the scenes is what I want to let everyone know in the memoir, because there's this assumption that even though I have been successful, that um, it's been very easy or that I'm some millionaire or something from these things. And half of the time, many of my biggest accomplishments, I didn't get paid for at all. And I wouldn't even have asked for any money for it anyway. It's, mm -hmm. it's you know that it's the right thing to do. Right. It needs to be done. And so when you have integrity about yourself, when you can see the future of your community, not just yourself, you're going to make these decisions to do things and volunteer for things and be on boards and that kind of thing. And that's just what I did. Yeah. And to wrap here, Chris, what is it that you have learned from this experience of narrating and, and writing this book with Tona and being her friend? Pretty much everything I know about transgender people. I wasn't particularly aware. Uh, I got a press release at a newspaper and so I looked into it and I just, I know a whole other aspect of humanity that was completely unknown to me and I have a lifelong friend. Mm -hmm.
Chris King is the memoir's narrator, Tona's longtime friend and former managing editor at the St. Louis American, and of course, Tona Brown is a classical vocalist and violinist, teacher, and author of the new memoir, Tenacity. Tenacity, the Tona Brown story, is available now at most major book outlets. Tona and Chris, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks. This episode was produced by Elaine Chow. Our audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.